All right. Well, thank you for being here today, whether you're in the room today or whether you're joining us online or over at our West Side campus. And I don't know if you noticed or not, but fall is officially here, uh, which means school is definitely back in session, whether it's public or private or charter or homeschool or college or grad school. And it kind of makes me wonder, of those of you who are here today, um, back in the day, if you were in school or if you are now, uh, how many of you really enjoyed it or are enjoying it? How many of you like school? Anybody willing to admit that in the crowd? Like, yeah, look, a number of you. That's awesome. How many of you just tolerated it? <laughs> Probably the other half of you or so just tolerated it. Well, you know, one of the challenges with school is that sometimes we're required to learn things that don't really seem to apply to life. And don't misunderstand me. I am all for education. I think you should learn as much as you can But not all knowledge is going to add necessarily value to your everyday life. I was just having a conversation with my oldest son. He was really good in math. I'm not good in math. And so we were talking about him taking calculus in high school. And his his instructor actually told the class at that particular time, they said, you know, unless unless you're going to teach this, you're probably never, ever going to use any of that. Well, I want you to know in the church, our textbook's something we can use all the time. It's the Bible. And at Academy Christian Church, we believe that the Bible is our authority for our faith and our practice. And we would agree 100% with what the Apostle Paul had to say in 2 Timothy 3, verse 16, where he said, All scriptures God breathed. In other words, it's inspired by God. It's useful for teaching and for correcting, rebuking, and for correcting, and then training in righteousness. Now that sounds like a lot of good information for life. But you know what I've discovered when you get into religious circles, there's been people who've spent a lot of time trying to figure out uh, really religious or spiritual mysteries that don't really have to do anything with real life. I remember back in Bible college hearing about theologians in the past who used to have long discussions about things like how many angels could actually fit on the head of a pin or whether or not it would be possible for God to create a boulder so large that he could not lift it. Uh, They would talk about stuff like that. And even today, there are people who'd like to get into deep discussions about things that we aren't really that sure about, we don't know about. Like the end times would be an example of that. A lot of people like today want to talk about the end times. It's a hot topic. Actually, it's been a hot topic since Jesus left. And really, there's only three things you really need to know about the end times. And that would be don't get complacent, be ready, and keep watch. At least that's what I hear Jesus saying. Well, today we're going to begin a focused study that actually is going to take us right up to about Christmas. And of course, you know, today is three months till Christmas Eve. Uh, I just had to bring that in. Uh, But this series is not going to be about uh, biblical theories or any unsolved spiritual mysteries, but has everything to do with how you live your life every single day. And if you notice, we're calling it the University of Practical Faith. And uh, we're going to study some truths that have the power to transform the way that you live. And we're going to be digging into a section of the book of Romans. Now, Romans is one of the clearest and most systematically uh, correct presentations of Christian doctrine in the Bible. 
And you heard a little bit of that in Dave's meditation. Paul begins by discussing what is clearly observable in our world today, the sinfulness of humanity and the reality that all people are condemned due to our rebellion against God. However, God in his grace offers us justification by faith in his son, Jesus. And when we've been justified by God, and if you remember, justified means it's just as if I'd never sinned. Uh, We receive complete forgiveness because of the blood of Christ covering our sin. But Paul then makes it also clear that a a believer's pursuit of God doesn't end at salvation. It actually continues as each of us learns to surrender every aspect of our life to God's will and his control, which I think, as many of you have experienced, that is much easier said than done. But over these next 12 weeks, in actually, instead of doing a study of the entire book of Romans, we're going to focus on just one chapter, chapter 12 of the book of Romans, which contains just 21 verses. Now, you might be wondering, why would we spend 12 weeks in just one chapter? Because this one chapter, folks, is an entire course on what our faith looks like in practical expression, and it's why we're calling this the University of Practical Faith. In the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans, it's filled with rich, deep theological teaching as Paul kind of lays out the groundwork for our Christian faith. And then in chapter 12, he makes this significant transition from what uh, really you need to know to now how you need to live because of what you know. And it's interesting, when when you get to chapter 12, he's laid the groundwork and uh, he he really kind of pulls out what I would call his practical application machine gun and uh, it's ready and he lets go of some rapid fire applications for how to live out your faith in Jesus Christ so that you can become God's best version of you. Now, mentioning that, it was interesting, this past week I was sitting in on a webinar and it was put on by a company called Crucial Learning. And as I listened to it, here were their statements of belief and vision and mission. And first of all, they said this, we believe in a world where all human beings can be great at being Human. That sounds like a pretty good goal, doesn't it? Then they said, we know that with the right skills, everyone can learn to behave in ways that make their lives, their families, their organizations, and our world better. Wouldn't that be great? And then the last part they say is, we are driven to find those crucial skills and share them with people in ways that make a difference. And I thought about that. That sounds like what God intended the church to be in our world. And honestly, I believe that's exactly what Paul had in mind for the church when he wrote the book of Romans. And so let's go ahead and jump in with really the first of his many practical faith applications that's found in Romans chapter 12. Today we're going to start with verse 1. And as we get to verse 1, I would like it if you would just join me and we could read that together aloud. Would you read it together with me? Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for these words, but they can have incredible meaning if we really take them to heart. And so today, I pray that you give us hearts and minds that can do just that 
Lead us by your spirit into the truth of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning, I really believe that that powerful verse contains four life-changing concepts. If we can grab onto those concepts, it can be life-changing. And I want you to know or to see that it all starts with the word, therefore. Because he starts out by saying, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters. Now, you maybe have heard a long time ago that anytime you come across the word, therefore, in the Bible, you need to be asking yourself, what is it there for? And therefore is actually a conjunctive adverb whose role is to be a connector, to make a connection between what's already been said and what is about to be said. And it's at this critical juncture in his letter where Paul is actually making this this huge shift. Therefore, and he's saying all of the things that I've been teaching you about, how to think and what to believe, this now is where the rubber meets the road. How does all of this translate into how you should be living your life every day? And the reason that Paul is doing this is because he understood the life-transforming concept that good orthodoxy leads to good orthopraxy. Did you realize that? Did you know that? Well, because the terms orthodoxy and orthopraxy might be a little ambiguous. It might be helpful for us to define those. Well, they're both actually compound Greek words with the first word of the compound being ortho. And that should be a fairly familiar uh, term to most of us today. Ortho, of course, means right, correct, or straight. And so think about it. What does an orthodontist do? Well, an orthodontist is a dentist who can straighten or correct teeth. Uh, How about an orthopedic doctor? Well, that's someone who can work with misalignments and mishaps with the skeletal system, such as broken bones, and help straighten them out. And so if someone is orthodox, it means that they believe correctly. Orthodoxy has to do with correct teaching or correct doctrine. Now, praxis in the second compound word sounds familiar to the English equivalent, practice. And so orthopraxy is simply correct practice or correct behavior. And so orthodoxy and orthopraxy are really just fancy words for having the correct, the right information so that then you can live rightly. Now that's important because I think it's true all of us here today have a system of belief that we have chosen or selected that actually guides and directs all of our life. And it probably really includes a mixture of our upbringing, our experience, social imprinting, personal pursuits and preferences, as well as instructional learning, all of which we have kind of synthesized into what we believe, and it has everything to do with now how we actually live. And so as in Romans 12:1, as we're going to see, I think it's interesting because also we can go to Titus chapter 3, verse 8, where Paul provides a good example of how orthodoxy and orthopraxy actually work together in one verse. Here it is, Titus 3, 8. He says to Titus, I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted God, that's the orthodoxy, may be careful to devote themselves to doing good. That's the orthopraxy. And folks, here is why orthodoxy and orthopraxy are so important. It's because what you do makes total sense to you. Isn't that true? 
What you do makes total sense to you. Now I'm going to get a little personal here today. And I'd like to ask a question. How many of you, before you came to church today, brushed your teeth? How many of you didn't brush your teeth? Don't raise your hand. The person next to you is going to be wigged out just a little bit. Now, I can guarantee you, whether you brushed your teeth or not, whether you did that, it made total sense to you. You see, for example, there's a lot of people who are either here today or online, and you're here because of what you believe or what you might be in pursuit of believing, and so it makes sense for you to be here today. There's a lot of people in Colorado Springs that aren't here today because they're doing what makes sense to them. And it's how you live, actually, that reveals what you believe. How you are currently today living your life is congruent with what you trust to be true. And part of the reason we know that is because in the book of James, chapter 2, verse 18, it says, but someone will say, you have faith and I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds And I'm going to show you my faith. I'll show you what I believe by my deeds. See, how you live today actually reveals what you believe. Now, did any of you happen to know that I I really like puns? Did you happen to know that? You you do if you've been around here at all for very long. And i got to share with you, it was so cool. At the last staff Christmas party last year... I actually got a desk calendar with a pun for every day of the year. It's been a good year. Here here was last Tuesday's pun. It said, I'm done with being a people pleaser, as long as everyone's okay with that. (laughs) Now, see, there's an individual who believes that they've got to please everyone or they're not going to be liked or accepted. And that's because what other people think of them is what they believe determines their worth. So that's how they live. And there's a reason that you arrive at whatever you believe to be true. You see, what you believe reveals how you think. So we got to think about that process of thinking. Now, I I tried, I couldn't really come up with a better illustration than this, but I I thought it kind of does it. And the kids will kind of connect with that. Do you ever remember when you were growing up hearing the story of Chicken Little? Remember, under an oak tree one day, acorn falls on the head, Chicken Little looks up in the air, doesn't recognize the tree or where that came from. And what do they say? The sky is falling. And it made lots of sense. That's what he believed based on what he was thinking. And that leads us to the next idea is that how you think actually reveals what you learned. And Chicken Little hadn't learned, obviously, (laughs) enough about life. But how you think reveals what you've learned. Your thinking is a composite of all that you've learned, either through life experience or in personal study or instruction or, or I might add, some propaganda that's out there today. And this is where, folks, I really want to encourage each of you to step up and take some responsibility for your own personal growth as we enroll in the University of Practical Faith. And you can earn some extra credit, well, maybe not, but at least some added benefit, because I want to challenge our church family over the next few months to simply start reading through the book of Romans just a chapter a day until we get done with this series. Now, there's 16 chapters, 
What that means is you'll have an opportunity to read through Romans at least four to five times in the next few months. And as you continue to read it, you're going to start connecting everything together from Romans chapter 12 that we're going to be uh, focusing on. And I want to encourage you, if you miss a day, don't despair. Just jump in the next day and keep reading. Well, what you do obviously makes total sense to you. And that's why the second life-transforming concept is so important. And the second concept is that the backdrop for my response to God is Jesus' death on my behalf. Got to recognize that. The backdrop for any response I have to God is Jesus' death on my behalf. And Paul wants to be clear that that's the basis for the next instruction instruction he's about to give. And so he makes a statement. He says, in view of God's mercy, I urge you in view of God's mercy, which of course he addresses in depth throughout this letter. And it's probably not said any better than he actually says it in Romans chapter 5, verse 8 that we saw. It says, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners before we had moved towards him christ died for us and that's something that is critical for us to be able to wrap our minds around because folks it's not just nice of jesus to die for you you can't say oh it's sure nice of him to do that for you folks it was absolutely essential for jesus to die for you and that whole attitude i think there's people who that's how they kind of think well it was kind of nice of jesus to die for me we got to realize, folks, if Jesus didn't die for you, you'd be toast. I mean, I think literally when I read about what happens in the Bible to people who aren't going to be in heaven. And because people think that way, they don't recognize then that really the only proper response to Jesus giving his life would be to surrender their life to them, to him. And in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, we're, we're told again, it says, the wages of sin is death meaning separation, eternal separation from God. But then it says the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And here's why that's so important to understand that. Because when you try to live out your faith without a true grace perspective, I can almost guarantee it, it's either going to feel forced or coerced. If you're not living it out of grace. See, if you don't continually live out your faith in view of God's mercy you're going to have a really, really hard time with what Paul says next. Because the less you think you need grace, the more difficult time you're going to have actually surrendering your life. And you'll end up asking yourself along the way, as God stirs you to do something, you'll be saying, do I, do I really have to do that? Or just end up saying, you know what, I just don't want to do that. And there's a reason, folks, why... Being here every work week to observe communion is so important. Because as Dave mentioned, it's designed to help reorient your life around Christ's death on the cross uh, on your behalf. And that's because it can only be in view of God's mercy and in response to the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf that we're able to actually accept the third concept. And the third life-transforming concept is this... <laughs> I'm no longer the boss of me. Now, you know, those weren't Paul's exact words. But I think that was exactly the idea when he says, I urge you 
to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. I mean, he literally is saying that we're to willingly surrender total control of our lives, which is something we've actually been pursuing since before we were two years old. You know, I love asking those wonderfully blessed parents of a two-year-old if their child has yet to develop a mind of their own. And uh, the answer's always an emphatic yes, and they said actually started way before they were two. And that's because each one of us has been given a great deal of autonomy by God. We are most certainly free will beings. And what that means is in my family, I learned early on that my children were not really my children. They were definitely their own person, and God had simply entrusted them to me in order that I could influence them in a godly way as much as possible before they became adults and were responsible for themselves. Now, did any of you happen to catch the oxymoron in Paul's statement? Now, you know an oxymoron, those those words that don't quite go together, like almost exactly, (laughs) or awfully good, deafening silence, freezer burn, loyal opposition. At the last service, someone asked me why I didn't say government intelligence, something like that. (laughs) I said, I'm not going there, not going there. But how about living sacrifice? Now, you know that comes from the language of worship in the Old Testament. See, in coming to God, a worshiper would bring a sheep or a bull or a pigeon and sacrificed it on an altar as an offering to God. Jesus, of course, ended all of that. And we know that in 1 Peter 1 where it says, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. And that's the good news. We no longer need to bring animal sacrifices to an altar because of Christ's sacrifice once and for all for us. But Paul's oxymoron, living sacrifice, is a profound statement that initially, I think, appears to be contradictory. And I mean, we have to acknowledge the juxtaposition of being a living sacrifice. Because a living sacrifice is something that actually has to be completely surrendered and yet remains completely viable. And you know, therein lies really the challenge. Because the problem with living sacrifices is that they keep crawling off the altar. When it, when it gets a little hot or they don't like it anymore or it's uncomfortable which just reminds me of the story of the chicken and the pig. Have you heard the story of the chicken and the pig? I'm not sure how it got there, but apparently the story is one day a chicken and a pig were walking along the road, as chickens and pigs usually are, and uh, they saw this sign from a restaurant that said, special today, breakfast, $5.99, bacon and eggs. And the chicken said, wow, that looks awesome, let's go get breakfast. And the pig said, no, 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 that's not gonna happen today. And the chicken's like, why, what's wrong with that? You know what the pig said? The pig said, oh, that's easy. Because to go there for breakfast, for you, that's just a donation. For me, that's a complete sacrifice, (laughs) right? And I think sometimes we're happy to make donations. The question is, are we willing to be a sacrifice. And we've got to recognize God may not require us to die for him. 
though he sometimes does. But he asks us something equally as difficult. He asks us to be willing to live for him. And we know that because Paul said in 2 Corinthians that Jesus died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. And we can only become living sacrifices when we willingly offer to God all that we have, spirit, soul, body, mind, heart, and will in a way that is holy and pleasing to God. We become living sacrifices when we willingly put God's agenda ahead of our own. And when we order our life around God's priorities rather than our personal ones or the ones the culture tries to impose on us. We become living sacrifice when we honor and when honoring God is of greater importance to us than our own pleasure. And when we choose to do what's right rather than what's convenient or self-satisfying. See, the offering of our bodies is all about behavior as well as behaviors. And folks, we, we got to get this somehow as Christ followers. See, our culture is going to tell you that your body belongs to you and you can do anything you want with it. Now, let's be fair. We all have areas that are more difficult for us to surrender to God than others. It might be how we handle money. It might be uh, our choice of lifestyle, our entertainment, or our relationships that are unhealthy or ungodly that are having greater influence on us than we are on them. But of course, I got to touch on another significant area in our culture today would have to do with our sexuality and our expression of it. And we've just gone way outside of God's boundaries. You know, to the point that I think one of the most disappointing things for me as a pastor over the years is the majority of the weddings that I have done, uh, the couple was either either already living together or they had a child or the child was on the way. Now, if that happened for you, please understand that is not unforgivable. But what we have to recognize, that's just not God's best. And if you're a young person here today, could you please get this? I mean, you bring something very special to your marriage when you enter it sexually pure. You do. But, you know, if we're going to get there ever, we've got to recognize it's going to be very challenging to live out our faith in God if at some point we've never totally surrendered our life to him and then continue to renew that commitment really daily. You think about a couple at a wedding. They make vows to one another. And what's so interesting, at the wedding, they'll make a a vow and then they'll go away and hardly ever revisit the vows. That's why a few years ago I came across a book where they were actually recommending, suggesting that that couples actually need to, to restate those vows to each other two or three times a week for the first 10 years of marriage and then at least once a week thereafter. And again... Every week we take communion, we have another opportunity to to remain surrendered to to God in view of his mercy. Well, concept number four, and then we've got to wrap it up. We need to know this. The way I live provides the clearest evidence of what I believe about God. The way I live provides the clearest evidence of what I believe about God. 
Now, I don't know about you. Have you ever been at a checkout counter at the store and you hand them a $20 bill? Does anybody hand somebody a $20 bill anymore? I don't know. I don't see that very often. But have you handed them a $20 bill? And then there's that awkward moment where the cashier kind of holds it up to the light or they feel it or they put some invisible ink on it. These are just tests to do what? To see if it's genuine, if it's real or if it's fake. And what Paul says next is that when you offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, And it's holy and pleasing to God. It is your true and proper worship. It's true because it's authentic and it's real and it's proper. It's what God deserves. And Jesus really says as much when he quotes the prophet Isaiah, who says in Isaiah 29, says, the Lord says, these people come near to me with their mouth and they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. You see, when we really truly worship something, it is because we really believe it and it affects the way we live. See, we give full life responses to the objects of our worship. And that's why the Apostle Paul in Romans 6 says, hey, do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. You know, an authentic Christ follower is not working for their salvation. we got to be clear about that. Paul is, all through the book of Romans. But they are working from their salvation. And I think think Paul, when he writes to Timothy in Timothy, or Titus, excuse me, in Titus chapter 2, he says it the best when he says this, for the grace of God has appeared, that offers salvation to all people. And it's that grace that teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Now that's where Paul starts Romans 12. Can you understand now why that's where Paul begins? So let me see if we can wrap this up. I want us to do real quickly Romans 12.1, just a quick review And what I'd like you to do is just on a scale from 1 to 10, if you could evaluate where you are in these places. And so the first one would be, how I live accurately reveals what I say that I believe. Now, you don't have to share that, but I'd like you to just come up with a number in your head. And I'll try to be a little transparent. I'd have to honestly give myself a 7. I wish I was higher than that. And then number 2, The grace of God is the motivation for how I live. And I gotta be honest here, I struggle with this one because I really haven't lived a horrible life. I'm far from perfect, but sometimes I don't know if I I really am thankful enough for the grace of God. And so there I'd probably give myself maybe an A, a six, I'm sorry. And then number three, I, I live my life in a way that honors God. And again, I'd probably just give myself a seven, maybe. What does that tell me? What it tells me is I have some room for improvement and I'm the pastor. But that's where the Apostle Paul himself encourages me because Paul was such an amazing Christ follower. And in Philippians chapter three, even after saying how much he was really trying to follow after God, he says, you know what? Not that I've already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, But I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. And that's the desire of my heart. 
As we close this morning, what I'd like you to think about is just saying, is there an area of your life that is unsurrendered to God? And maybe that's because you've been trying to do that not in view of God's mercy, but instead just because, well, I just think that's the right, maybe the right thing to do. Because in view of God's mercy, that's where we get to the point where we can really be surrendered to God. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this incredible word that you've given to us. Help us, Father, to recognize that it's only in view of your mercy that we're ever going to be able to get to a place of surrender, to be willing to offer ourselves to you. And so I pray for all of us in this room to be able to accept that love and that grace in a way that would move us toward you and toward the life that you would hope and plan for us. Guide us there, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.